Good morning. I'm reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if for now, for a little while, you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you're receiving the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I'm reading from John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hands in his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, reach out your hands and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. One of the things I always used to tell students at Theological College when we were training them in preaching was uh, don't overdo stories drawn on your own family. Well, I'm going to break that rule because I'm about to tell a story that both Ruth, who is doing the Bible reading, she is my sister-in-law for those of you who don't know, and uh, Liz, they were both present for this story. It was a, a number of years ago now, and I found myself part of one of those conversations over the meal table. And it fairly quickly became one of those conversations where I began to wish that we were actually talking about something else. The topic had turned to questions of doubt and faith. And uh, one of my dining partners around the table had expressed the firm view that a Christian with doubts wasn't really a Christian at all. I'm afraid I found myself rising to the bait dangling before me and replied that it seemed to me that the kind of belief which never questions itself is not only doubt in denial, but also potentially dangerous. 
After all, I went on, who can honestly say that they haven't woken up some mornings and wondered whether the whole faith thing is just a big mistake or some figment of the imagination? Simon Woodman, came the reply, you are a very wicked man. Well, similar things have been said before and since, and will probably be said again before I'm done with this life. But on this occasion, I do stand by what I said. Faith without doubt seems unlikely to me, and I certainly don't experience them as incompatible opposites. And yet, as Christians, we are so often afraid to talk about doubt. We're so often afraid to talk of the things we don't believe. We're so often afraid to own the hesitations, the misgivings, the qualms and the uncertainties that lie behind the articulation and practice of our faith. Thomas, or Doubting Thomas, as he has forever become known, poor chap, isn't one of those biblical heroes of the faith. I mean, come on, let's face it, he's a wuss, isn't he? Doubter. What do we... Poor man. He's the guy who famously doesn't get it. The one who needs a special appearance from Jesus, complete with wounds that he can poke his finger into before he can bring himself to utter his own statement of belief. Or so we're led to believe. However, Firstly, despite the lurid depictions of pretty much every artistic representation of the scene, there is no actual record of Thomas prodding his finger curiously into a gaping wound in Jesus' side. If, if you look at the, uh, the post I put up for this sermon online, I've used uh, Caravaggio's picture of, of this, and it's, it's really quite gory. You know, there's this kind of strangely bloodless hole in Jesus' side and, and Thomas sticking his finger in. Rather, what actually happens is Thomas responds to Jesus' invitation to do this by uttering the greatest confession of faith to be found in any of the gospel narratives. My Lord and my God, he declares, putting into words the ultimate truth of the gospel, which is that Jesus is God become frail flesh. These are not the words of a doubtful prodder. They are the confessions of an archetypically faithful disciple. But secondly, the verb doubt doesn't even appear in the story of doubting Thomas, as we might think we know it from John's Gospel. Oh, it's there in the English, all right. The translators of the New Revised Standard Version and the other uh, versions that we tend to use have helpfully added it. They have Jesus say to Thomas, do not doubt, but believe. However, in the Greek of the original, what Jesus says to Thomas is not, do not doubt, but rather, do not be faithless. The positive antithesis that follows then is not believe, but be faithful. Not do not doubt, but believe. Rather, do not be faithless, but be faithful. 
It's not doubt that Thomas must leave behind, but faithlessness. And it's not belief that he must embrace, but faith. This isn't actually a conversion story from doubt to belief. I think this puts quite a different spin on the story, at least as most of us will have grown used to it. Thomas isn't doubting Thomas at all. He's a man on a journey towards faithfulness. As I hope, are we all? And we're all at different stages along our journeys towards faithfulness. In his letter to the Corinthians, Paul lists faith as one of the gifts that comes by the Spirit. It's there in 1 Corinthians 12, if you're interested. And it's surely significant that Thomas, the disciple still on his journey towards faith, was absent for the first visit of Jesus into that locked upper room. He missed out when Jesus breathed his Holy Spirit onto the others. And if faith is a gift of the Spirit, well, Thomas was absent when Jesus breathed his spirit on them. So it's understandable that at this point in the story, he's a step behind the others in his journey towards faith. The other disciples have already had an experience of the resurrected Christ. They've already received his spirit. They've already moved a step from faithlessness to faithfulness. But Thomas has yet to make that journey and he struggles to take it on trust from the others who are just claiming it to be true. And I don't think I'm so different to Thomas on this one. I've always struggled to believe things just because somebody else tells me that I should. In fact, somebody else telling me that I should do something is usually a, a foregone uh, trigger into me then doing precisely the opposite because that's the kind of bloody mindedness that I have in my personality. Apparently as a small child my favorite question was why followed closely by what's going on now daddy and whilst I no longer have to ask my father to interpret everything for me I think the desire to know why the desire to question the desire to dig deeper to know more that remains as strong for me now as it ever did. It's one of my fundamental convictions that no question is unaskable. No dogma is unquestionable. No truth is unshakable. So when I went to university in my late teens to read biblical studies, I remember one of the well-meaning elder members of the congregation that I'd grown up in taking me to one side and warning me that going to study the Bible in a secular context such as university could be quite damaging to my faith. I'm not sure how I answered him, but I can remember thinking that if my faith could not withstand the most difficult questions one can ask of it, then maybe it's not really a faith that's worth holding on to. The other memory I have from that period in my late teens was of a former minister, long retired and living locally, inviting me round for dinner a week or two before I set off on my journey of faith deconstruction at university, my journey of questioning and knowledge seeking. And he said something that stayed with me powerfully ever since. What he said was this, he said, faith is a relationship, 
not a theology. Faith is a relationship, not a theology. And what I hear this to mean is that faith in Christ is predicated on a relationship with the risen Christ by his spirit. Faith is not predicated on a set of theological propositions which must be assented to in order to ensure orthodoxy. And it is not predicated on a list of things that one must believe in order to be a Christian because faith is not a theology. It is a relationship. This is one of the reasons I've always resisted any attempt to make me sign anything that looks like a statement of faith. I don't think we need lists of things to believe in in order for us to be faithful in our relationship with the risen Christ. We know the risen Christ by the Spirit, not by a carefully worked out systematic belief system. And this takes us, I think, to the heart of the difference between belief and faith and their corresponding opposites of doubting and faithlessness. Belief implies a set of propositions to which one must either assent or dissent. If you don't agree with the truth of the propositions, then you are a doubter. Faith, on the other hand, implies a state of being. Faith is about being in Christ, as Paul would put it. And being faithless is therefore a necessary part of being faithful. We are all on a journey towards faithfulness and we are at different stages on that journey and being a few steps back on that journey does not make you a doubter in an unhealthy and pejorative way. It does not make you a backslider. It just means we're walking in the same direction at different stages along the way. And so to return to Thomas and his journey towards faith. According to John's Gospel, he finds faith through his personal encounter of the risen Christ. He doesn't get there by believing what others tell him about their experiences of Christ, and neither does he get there by assenting to their propositions about an empty tomb. Rather, Thomas discovers that faith in the resurrected Christ is the product of a relationship with Christ, which comes as a gift to him by the Spirit of Christ. So faith for Thomas is about relationship, not theology. And so also with us. I think the key question for faith for us is not whether we believe in the historical proposition of the empty tomb or indeed any other of the classic propositions of our religion. Rather it is whether the resurrection of Jesus to which the Gospels bear testimony becomes true in our lives as by faith we discover that that new life which is ours in Christ. For Thomas, the journey towards faith wasn't about him becoming convinced by the testimony of others that the body of Jesus had been reanimated in some strange way that meant it could pass through locked doors and enter locked rooms. 
Rather for Thomas, it was about the appropriation into his own life of the resurrected power of the risen Christ. Thomas's experience of the risen Jesus was mystical, as of course was Paul's on the road to Damascus, as is mine, as of necessity is all of ours. None of us meet the historical risen Jesus present with us in flesh. We encounter Christ by his spirit as he is made alive in our lives and our community. It was this experience of resurrection that generated the gospel's ultimate and culminative articulation of faith, the naming of Jesus as God, my Lord and my God. And there's a delicious irony in the fact that the only person within the narrative of the fourth gospel to grasp the point of the gospel is so-called doubting Thomas. Only Thomas echoes the authorial assertion of the prologue that we looked at way before Christmas, that Jesus is God. Only Thomas grasps that in Jesus, the regenerative love of God has taken flesh to become real in the lives of all those who are still bound in mortal flesh. It takes the doubter to grasp faith. And this is because for Thomas, it's not really about doubt and belief. It's about a lived experience of and relationship with the resurrected Christ. It might be worth taking a moment at this point to consider the difference between truth and historicity. After all, this is at the core of Thomas's story. What does it mean to confess faith in the resurrection of Jesus? Is it the same thing as asserting belief in the physical resuscitation of the body of Jesus? Interesting question. And as I said, I believe no questions are beyond asking. It may be, indeed, that the two are synonymous. And certainly the dominant consensus within the Christian tradition has been that to have faith in the resurrection of Christ is to believe in the proposition of the empty tomb. But the thing is, the Bible itself is somewhat more ambiguous on this. I know, annoying woodman taking us back to the text of the Bible again. Here in our story from John's Gospel, it's clear that the disciples' experience of the resurrected Christ was of a different order of experience from that which had characterised their engagement with him during his earthly ministry. The resurrected body of Jesus is quite odd in the fourth gospel. It's able to pass through locked doors. It moves around, despite continuing to be scarred by the fatal wounds of the crucifixion. If we go to the other gospels, Mark's gospel, the earliest of the four, originally ended at the empty tomb, with the Markan resurrection narratives being inserted later in that gospel's tradition. Paul, who wrote the earliest texts of the New Testament, writing in the 50s, spoke at length and frequently about the necessity of faith in the resurrection of Christ, but never once does so 
in terms of a physical body resuscitated after death. Because, of course, Paul's own experience of the resurrected Christ was an experience in a mystical, visionary world. As, of course, is Thomas's. For Thomas, the resurrected Jesus appeared mysteriously to him in a locked room. While for Paul, he appeared mysteriously in a vision on the road to Damascus. The stories of physical resuscitation in the New Testament are all found within the later documents. In those gospels written a generation or more after the time of Jesus. As Christians sought language and stories to express their lived faith in the resurrected Christ. I'll put it as boldly as I can. Thomas did not come to believe in the resurrection. He came to faith in the resurrected Christ as his Lord and his God. And I sometimes think we get it round the wrong way in Christianity. The truth of the story of the resurrection is to be found in the realisation that the tomb is empty because Jesus is risen, rather than in belief that Jesus is risen because the tomb is empty. The empty tomb does not prove the resurrection. Rather, the experience, the relationship we have with the risen Christ means that the tomb must be empty. This is the purpose, of course, of the original shorter ending of Mark's Gospel. Mark deliberately leaves the narrative hanging at the empty tomb because he invites his readers to answer in their own lives the question posed by the empty tomb. Where is Christ? Why is the tomb empty? It is empty because Christ is risen. And Christ is present now by his spirit in the lives of those who have by faith encountered him in life-giving relationship as by the power of his spirit, he brings transformation and resurrection to being in the lives of all those who come to him in faith. How do we know Christ is risen? We know this because we know the risen Christ. And we know him by his spirit at work in our lives, bringing to birth the fruits of resurrection in us and in our community of faith. We know him as he breathes his spirit on us, and speaks words of peace and reconciliation over and into us. We know the resurrected Christ as we gaze upon his wounds and realise that the God-made flesh has entered into the depths of human pain and sorrow and suffering, to open a path through death to new life, to new hope, to resurrection, to forgiveness, to peace and to love. As former Archbishop Rowan Williams puts it, he says, There is no hope of understanding the resurrection outside the process of renewing humanity in forgiveness. We are all agreed, he says, that the empty tomb proves nothing. We need to add that no amount of apparitions, however well authenticated, would mean anything either. Apart from the testimony of forgiven lives communicating forgiveness. Or as Jesus himself put it in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. 
Faith in the resurrected Christ is a gift of the spirit of Christ. It is not the product of evidence or theological assertion. Because faith is a relationship, not a theology. And so faith is not incompatible with doubt. As Philip Yancey has put it, he says, I'm an advocate of doubt because that's why I became a Christian in the first place. I started doubting some of the crazy things my church taught me when I was growing up. As my predecessor here at Bloomsbury, uh, my good friend Simon Perry has put it, Christians make the best atheists because our belief in the one God of love revealed in Christ means that we do not believe in all those other gods. There are an awful lot of gods I've encountered over the years, some of them in Christian congregations, that I have come to the conclusion I do not believe in, I doubt their existence, and I think that has been very helpful in pointing me to where my faith in Christ really lies. Because doubt is the skeleton on which faith is built. And too often churches have taught, either verbally or tacitly, that to doubt is to sin. Well, you have heard it said that doubt is despicable, but I say to you, question everything and treasure those questions. Because in the questioning, the resurrected Christ is found and known. Or as Peter put it in his first epistle, as we heard it read earlier, and I will conclude with this. The genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that, though perishable, is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy, for you are receiving the outcome of your faith in the salvation of your souls. Amen. I'm going to invite our panellists up this morning, which I believe is Duncan, Sean, Mark and Evelyn. Thank you. I hope you've had a moment to formulate some thoughts or questions or reflections. Even should we start with you? Um. Yes, what I found interesting in uh, the story of Thomas the Doubter is that he's part of the community. And uh, so are we, wherever we are on our journey. And uh, I think this is very reassuring. And um, also that uh, faith is a relationship and this is also uh, very good um, and yes the thing that the community aspect i think mm. is very yeah. very interesting i love the idea that being christian is not predicated on a, a series of theologies or doctrines but it's about being part of the risen body of Christ, being part of the church, part of the community. Should we go to Duncan next? Thank you. <clears throat> well, 10 years of Simon Woodman, if it's 500 <laughs> Sundays, 
I wonder if I've heard 300 sermons by Dr. Woodman. That's a, that's a lot, isn't it? Must have had a huge influence on my thinking. Thank you, Simon, for all the time you spent preparing all those sermons over the last decade. Um, I was struck by a theological message that I heard last Sunday, or I saw. I don't know whether any of you have been to Waterloo Station. There's a poster which is about twice the size of that. It's the biggest advertisement in London, and it's got a message about theology on it. It says, God is a woman. And the uh, response that the commuters at Waterloo Station are supposed to have to this remarkably strong assertion is that they're supposed to buy some perfume. Because God is a Woman is the name of a new perfume branded by Ariana Grande. And this is the message that is most prominent on Waterloo Station over Easter Sunday. So, is there a connection between that and the story of the risen Christ and doubting Thomas? A bit of a stretch, isn't it, to make the, make the link. But I'm just thinking about what Simon said about people being on different stages in their faith journey. But what they have as an idea about faith and their response to God or religion is going to depend on what they've experienced culturally. And I think it's really worth remembering that because, you know, just in my own family, my experience was growing up in the Brethren, a very fundamentalist uh, religious denomination in which faith was unambiguous. And, you know, my wife's experience is different. She grew up in Japan in a non-Christian environment where other religions are um, prominent and where, you know, in a, in a country where religion was manipulated by uh, political figures in the 1930s and therefore religious education has been banned. So I think it's really helpful to be um, mindful about the very different uh, experiences that all of us have, religious people and secular people, in terms of how we meet God and uh, where we see her. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> she is fantastic. Um, I mean, I, yeah, just this, like the, the idea of that journey and the different places that we're on. And, the, and I love the idea of like this, of faith being a journey, of it being a relationship, not conversion. I've always struggled with conversion. I, like, I don't know how many times I went up to the front to be prayed for and to believe again, like to give my life to God, hoping that this time I would know in the deep center of my core that God was real and, and that now I was saved and that never happened. But this idea of journey and relationship is so releasing. I wish I knew it sooner. Um, I wish I experienced that sooner. So yeah, just, I love the idea of like, we don't know where people are. We don't, who knows how many people that message is out. That's free publicity, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Simon. Your, your sermon deeply resonates uh, with me, and I'm, I think I'm very grateful to be part of a church that allows, welcomes doubt and questioning. I think faith is relationship. I think doubts and questions invite relationship as well. They mean openness, they mean readiness to be challenged, they mean 
listening, engaging, relating, and actually building together the face that we want to be the face of, of this church, this commonly shared faith, and I think it's enriched by our diversity. At the same time, too much doubt can be incapacitating, too much doubt can lead to inaction because, and so we need, we need some convictions, some truths that we want to go and, and act about, upon. Doubt can be a weapon. Doubt can undermine society. Does climate change really happen? Is, are the vaccine, vaccines really meant to do what we're being told? And so it may lead to the worst conspiracies. And so I think we need to find our path between regular doubt and, 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 and challenge, but also firmly held faith and belief that, that allows action and moving, and moving forward. Yeah, thank you, Jean-Marc. And that expression of faithfulness in a life that offers forgiveness and is moved to action, I think that is a beautiful thing. Is there anything from our online chat? I just want to say, while well, Simon looks for the online, I think John Mark's point is interesting because that moves faith from being in the religious dimension to other areas of, uh, uh, of human life as well. I think it's one of the characteristics of liberalism that we have faith that things can change and that individual and collective action will improve situations. And so uh, faith in ourselves, faith in people, organisations, civil society, political parties, these, these, are, these are values which are greatly prized in liberal democracy. Whether or not people have religious faith is a slightly different question, but faith is actually very fundamental to the way we, th we think about the way in which we organise our societies. Thank you, Duncan. Hi, yeah, there's just one um, uh, thing in the chat from Jeff. Um, Jeff says, um, he tends to say that the evidence for the resurrection is the church, um, emphasis on the small c. Um, the aspect of relationship versus theology comes through from this. Um, any member of a congregation is in a relationship with all other members of congregations. Uh, and he goes on to say, uh, he was in a house group and said that science asks why, but was corrected to science asks how. That's it. Thank you, Chair. Are there any more thoughts or reflections this morning? Thank you to our panelists and thank you to our online guys for sharing and engaging. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us and for the privilege of being here together this morning. Thank you, Lord, for allowing us to doubt so that we can grow in faith. Thank you, Lord, for giving us hope, strength and direction when we sometimes get lost in doubt.
When as Thomas the Doubter, we find ourselves wandering in this troubled world. But your love and deep compassion are comforting us, giving us faith. May we use our faith to commit ourselves more fully at your service. Lord, let us pray for Ukraine as the conflict still rages, putting people on the road, appending lives, and creating so much misery and destruction. We pray for all those trapped or engaged in this war on either side. We pray for our leaders that they may find a way towards peace, even when there is doubt on how to get there. We pray for all the families affected by the war and their journeys into new countries. Help us welcoming them and being attentive to their needs. Lord, with global food insecurity made worse by this war, we pray for all the people affected by drought, drought food shortages, especially in Africa. May we use our resources wisely to provide fairly for everyone. And closer to our home, we pray for all those in need in our country and communities. And we give thanks for all the volunteers involved in food banks. Help us to be generous. Lord, as this is once again a time for voting, let us question the assertions of our politicians and make wise choices for our local communities, cities and countries. Whether in the presidential election in France today or in the local elections coming up shortly in this country, we pray that issues of climate change and social justice will finally be taken seriously and addressed. Dear Lord, thank you for the nature around us, which is once again in full bloom. Let us similarly be renewed and strengthened by your resurrection. Thank you for your presence in our lives in our families, in our congregation. May we be good listeners and care for the needs of people around us. We pray for the people we know who are sick, sad or isolated. And we take a moment to name them in our hearts. Dear Lord, we pray for this church and for each other. We are grateful for our diversity that makes us richer and stronger. Help us reinforce our faith and the bond that unites us so that together, strengthen, we can open, we can be an open and welcoming actor of our local community. 
Dear Lord, as we leave this service, may we walk along your path with or without doubts, but deeply anchored in relationship with you and with our brothers and sisters in faithfulness. We pray that we may take your words in our hearts and act on them. We ask for all this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.